today on City Cash Chicago. As the federal government ends one state of emergency, Mayor Lightfoot declares another. So, what does this mean for Chicago? Plus, reshuffling city council power, and we're saying goodbye to a real one. I'm joined by Block Club Chicago's Quinn Myers and City Cast lead producer Carrie Shepard. It's Friday, May 12th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Good morning, Quinn. Good morning, Carrie. Welcome back to the mic. Hey, Jacoby. Hey, Quinn. We got to jump right into this, Quinn, and I want to start with you. Earlier this week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot declared a state of emergency for the ongoing migrant crisis that's been gripping Chicago since last fall. Uh, Can you make some sense of what this state of emergency means for the city? Sure. Well, we are indisputably in a humanitarian crisis, uh, migrant crisis, whatever you want to call it. People are sleeping on the floors of police stations across the city from Englewood to Rogers Park. No showers, no food. People are have children, pregnant women are sleeping on the floor. There is absolutely a crisis, and I think it is fair to call it an emergency. So finally, after a few weeks of um, more and more migrants showing up in the city, um, some of them bust here by Texas's governor. Um, The mayor declared a state of emergency on Tuesday. Um, So what does that mean? You know, I think it really was uh, part of it is signaling the urgency of the situation. It does free up some red tape. I think, you know, uh, some spending decisions can be made quicker in response to this. I think uh, city employees can be allocated and directed in different ways, uh, maybe more efficiently. Uh, It also leaves the option open for the mayor to uh, request the governor to send in the National Guard to potentially help staff uh, new shelters and respite centers. Um, But what it doesn't do is just necessarily bring in a ton of money all at once, right? Um, We are still waiting on tens of millions of dollars that the city has requested from the state, from the federal government. We've gotten a little bit of that, um, but we're waiting to see more of that. Uh, Meanwhile, city council is in the process of uh, pushing through about $51 million to um, just as a stopgap to help shelter um, some of the uh, 100 to 200 migrants per day we're seeing here. Quinn, do do these... At these police stations, is there any indication that the the police there are expecting these migrants to arrive? I don't know how much uh, pre-notice they're given. What I heard yeah. from one police source at the Logan Square station was he was saying um, basically they try to keep the numbers as even as possible throughout you know the 22 police districts. Um, basically, if the numbers drop at Logan Square, they'll bring in more from you know uh, somewhere in Jefferson Park or something. They'll mm. kind of bring people, relocate. but there's, it doesn't. They'll relocate to try to offset. But you know, as recently as. Tuesday, we heard about there were 20 migrants sleeping at the 14th district in Logan Square and as many as 50 or even maybe upwards of of that uh, at the 12th district in Pilsen. So it kind of seems to be wherever we can get them some space that's not outside. We talked with Block Club Chicago's Madison Savager and Little Village Community Council President Baltazar Enriquez earlier this week, who really outlined the nature of this crisis, where many of these asylum seekers are coming from, what they're going through on their route to Chicago, and the the different stories we're hearing. But two things that they really made clear to us is one, one of the things driving this crisis, as you said, is just a lack of coordination, whether it is from the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, 
giving no forewarning to the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. The ongoing coordination between the federal government, the state government and the city still seems to be lacking. There's no clear sense of, of how to move forward. And then when you ask, like, what is needed? Obviously, there are plenty of needs for donations and volunteers. But what we keep hearing from lawmakers is money. Carrie, right now, the city council is trying to move through, push through $51 million. But how much money has the city of Chicago received from the state and the federal government compared to what they're asking for? Yeah, the city's budget director uh, said that the city had requested around $110 million from the state and has been granted $30 million. And I don't want to get into like number soup here because, you know, mm-hmm. that's just a what do those numbers even mean? Right. But when you think that like. And when you also hear that the budget director tells Alderman that the feds gave the city four million and the city after requesting 66 million, Mm -hmm. you can see there's a there's a big gap there. And you can also I think even for us, us regular pedestrians, uh, everyday people, four million. It just doesn't sound like enough, you know, even to to help 8,000 people. provide shelter, resources, food, everything. Exactly. Language services. You have to pay translators. Um, And then just, yes, just this week, actually, uh, some of the Illinois delegation of Congress, they asked FEMA for more money. Uh, They asked for an expedited reimbursement of $20 And so when you think about FEMA... It's kind of interesting, you know, FEMA is where what you hear where you get money when there's a natural disaster, right? Tornadoes and hurricanes, they happen to red and blue states. But in a situation like this, it's been made so political. You know, Lightfoot has been so clear that, you know, the villain here is Texas governor, Republican governor Greg Abbott. It's so difficult for us to think, well, how this is going to get politicized. These are people. Right. And let's be clear, like we are witnessing an exercise in cruelty. Like I don't exactly. I don't think exactly. I don't think that, you know, maybe that's not the most objective statement I've ever made in my life. But it, it's true. And and I think the mayor is right to say that the the these people, these uh migrants are being used as political pawns. It's exactly true. Exactly. And, um, you know, we can criticize uh the city's response, which we have done and and uh will continue to do. But um you know, give credit to the city, to Mayor Lightfoot. This is not necessarily of her making. She is responding to it. Speaking of the individuals who seem to be villainized in this conversation with the mayor putting most of that on uh, the Texas governor, I will also say, I want to make sure that as we have this conversation, there have been meetings over the last few months to bring shelters to Woodlawn, bring shelters to South Shores. They have have been in, in some other neighborhoods around the city. When I see those community meetings, From the vantage point of my friends, the organizers I look up to, community members, I see a much more nuanced conversation happening here about what does it mean to deprive communities of resources and then, you know, move in new individuals into that community? What does it mean to turn shuttered schools, shuttered community centers into uh, shelters when for years community members have also been struggling with unhoused members of their community, people who lack food and resources in their community, and we've been fighting to to get access to this building. And yet when I see from the vantage point of of TV news, I see moments being clipped to to make it seem as if South Shore and and Woodlawn are just fomenting anti-immigrant sentiments, as if they do not have empathy uh, for these individuals. And, And I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is after generations of of resource deprivation, 
people are just hungry to see their communities uh, be invested in, and they don't want humanitarian crises to be the only moments in which they see resources flooding into their community. And they also have questions about, well, what is the city doing beyond providing people shelter? Are you also thinking about legal services? Are you also thinking about child care and child programming? Are you also thinking about employment and language services? And so I just hope that we continue to make sure as we have this conversation, we don't end up in a situation where we're villainizing Chicagoans who who have real questions and real concerns um, about the, the the future of not only where how our asylum seekers going to be taken care of, but how are we going to continue to provide wraparound services for both them and the communities that they're being moved into? Right. Well, you know, we've been in a we're in a state of emergency and a humanitarian crisis, but you could certainly say that decades of systemic disinvestment as is a crisis as well, right? Exactly. And, and maybe if we marshaled resources in the same way, we could actually make some progress. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to do oppressed first oppressed, you know, and that becomes a really, really, it just doesn't, it's not a helpful game. It doesn't mm-hmm. push any policy and it doesn't make anything better. Yeah. Right. And that and that's not me making excuses for the people who are out exactly. here. And it's purely, you know, uh, anti sort of violent racist. rhetoric, yeah. anti asylum seeker rhetoric, you know, racist. Send them the little village or send them back or build this or build that. No, 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 no. That's trash and terrible, but also a product of disinvestment um, and, and sort of allowing these narratives to, to gain the amount of steam. So we will continue to to provide updates as we move forward. Uh, we'll also have resources, volunteer opportunities later in the episode. So make sure you stick around. We always want to make sure we're bringing attention to the stories that might not get the same uh, amount of focus in a given week. Obviously, we have been talking about the COVID-19 pandemic for three years. But this week, as the state of emergency was being declared in Chicago, one state of emergency was ending around Illinois and the United States. uh, And that was the COVID emergency order. But Carrie, I don't know if people are clear what that might mean for Illinois or even for themselves. So can you provide some of that context? Yeah, it's interesting, right? That was like barely made a blip. We were like, what? What COVID? What? We're still in an emergency order? And I think that, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, the pandemic is undercovered. Of course not, nor should it should it be. At this point, though, it's teetered off a bit. But all of us almost know someone or we've ourselves had COVID. That's a very different picture than even, you know, two years ago. Vaccines are available. But it does mean I I felt like this was important for me personally is that, you know, you're no longer going to have access to free tests. I should say that even though insurers are no longer required to pay for the at-home tests, uh, the CDPH, the Chicago Department of Public Health, tells me that um, they'll maintain a stock of tests and system for distribution in case of a surge. Um, also that, you know, to contact your insurance provider because they may still choose to cover them. Uh, and folks on Medicaid, there'll be tests will be covered through September of 2024. Um, and then that's for the at-home tests. And then for like with the PCR tests, which are a little more accurate, those are in the lab. Insurance decides uh, they may decide to require co-pays. Uh, and for people on Medicare, the tests will be covered when ordered by a provider. And then a same same as the at-home tests um, 
folks on Medicaid will continue to get these covered through September 2024. Uh, I should say CDPH, Illinois Department of Public Health, they have a ton of literature about this on their websites, and we'll link to them in our show notes as well. Mm -hmm. But this just means that anytime you start to put a price on something that was free, it becomes less accessible, you know, and that means fewer people are going to be testing. But I should be clear that the vaccines will still be covered uh, by private insurers and also as part of uh, Medicaid and Medicare coverage. And it's, you know, it's ultimately the federal government is kind of abdicating their role here. They're saying, yep, we stood up all this stuff for a couple of years and now you guys are kind of on your own. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we're seeing that play out in so many different policy decisions. Like, I mean, in, in the immigration system, right. Personally, I feel like I've kind of adjusted back to the new reality. Um, but I know, I know a lot of people who haven't, I know a lot of people who still mask a lot. And, That's what um, I was going to say. And, you know, I, I think, um, it's kind of unclear, like it's, there's no real clear guidance. I don't even know exactly when we should be masking anymore. I think it's more of a gut check thing. At this I think point. so too. When you yeah. feel comfortable, you know, I mean, like for me on a plane or, you know, and uh, Ubers, I still do it. But yeah, then I take it off as soon as I walk into a restaurant. I, I you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to know. Yeah. M- my hope with this is that even as the emergency order ends, we still keep a sense of concern for people. We still are watching out because we don't want that that ticker at the bottom of the screen that reminds us that people are still dying exactly. in Chicago, in, Il- in Illinois from COVID-19. I still go to events put on by immunocompromised people who now the language has changed where it was like you're required to mask. Now they're really, they feel like they can't require you. So they're begging you almost as like, just please bring a mask. Think about the other people are here. But I just want to make sure we're still making room for the people who the pandemic is is far from over for them because COVID-19 is still here and it's and it's many variants. And so, as you said, Carrie, uh, vaccines will still be available for people. Check in with your your medical providers, right, with your insurance providers to find out what is your ability to get testing um, as well. Get treatments and medications uh, and, and stay on top of this as much as possible. And then I should also say, I think it's worth noting that there's some there's hundreds of thousands of people they expect to be losing their Medicaid or Medicare Mm -hmm. coverage because they are you know, they make they make more than is required to be part of that program. And so it's important for people to understand if they are part of that, to pay attention to that. During the pan- the height of the pandemic, there was like something the state said, you know, there's not going to be a coverage cliff. We're not just going to drop people off of coverage. But that's all going to start to shift and change. So people need to be aware of that. Quinn, I want to kick it to you. We spent so much time talking about the inauguration of Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson that people need to also be reminded that they, a new city council is also coming into order at the start of next week. I don't want to get too insidery here, but city council and the way the power is going to be spread amongst the alders, um, you know, a lot of that is based on who the mayor is. And so what does Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson's plan uh, mean for the future of power in the city council? Sure. Well, there's two, I think, two things, important things to remember. One is that the city council has historically always been what we call a rubber stamp for the mayor. Basically, the mayor wants a piece of legislation passed, they pass it. The mayor wants to block this uh 
development, whatever, they block it. Um, that started to chip away in the, during the Lightfoot administration a little bit, but mostly uh, Lightfoot got her most of her agenda actually through mm-hmm. city council. Um, the other thing to remember is that uh, city council committees hold a lot of power. They basically vet legislation before they go to the full city council. And the chairs, whoever heads those committees, basically um, most of the time gets to decide if anything gets a vote or gets killed or gets held, mm-hmm. right? So go back all the way to March uh, 30th, five days before the uh, runoff election, the city council pushed through a plan, essentially a declaration of independence. They said, we are going to appoint our own committee chairs. Usually it's been the mayor who's kind of decided who chairs these committees. Um, This was passed by 34 other people. It was kind of a big deal um, and not without controversy. It took place five days. Go Some ahead, people yeah. said this is the mayor's allies trying to to keep their power because they feel like as soon as the new mayor comes in, they out. Absolutely. And I think we've seen that that is actually what happened. Because, it's true. Um, it's true. <laughs> you know, um, that kind of dec- that independence effort was led um, by Scott Wagesback, notably um, chair of the powerful finance committee. Um just this week, past week, Brandon Johnson's team kind of uh, came out who he was backing in the terms of the city council power structure. Scott Wagesback is nowhere to be found. He has been vanquished uh, from the finance committee. Instead, Johnson ally Pat Dowell will likely, if this passes in two weeks, which I think a lot of people expect it will, uh, she will likely take over the finance committee. So we're really going to see kind of this progressive push on city council. And that uh, bodes probably bodes well for Johnson's uh, progressive promises. Quinn, I think it's really important that you note, um, like in covering Chicago politics, it's always like, you know, Alderman Burke is the head of the powerful finance committee. But we don't really explain to regular people like what is so powerful about these committees. But you you had a concise explanation of what makes these, quote unquote, so powerful. Right. I mean, I think I mean, the finance committee, uh, if, you know, Brandon Johnson has uh, promised a series of new taxes here, um, you know, adding a corporate back, a corporate head tax, increasing the real estate transfer tax. Those things would likely have to go, at least in some part, through the finance committee. Right. And so if Scott Wagesback, who is uh, neutral or perhaps uh, against some of Brandon Johnson's agenda, a light foot ally, yeah. a light foot ally, even though he's claims he's always been an independent, um, you know, he could potentially um stall those measures for moving past. And history has shown if a mayor does not have the backing of council and committee chairs, what it does, a la Harold Washington and the council wars sure. and the white city council blocking right. and how, pretty much and his Harold entire Washington, agenda. <laughs> during his first term, like got essentially nothing through, nothing big through city council, right, because of that. And so I, I think it is definitely a sign um, from Johnson to his base, like, hey, I, I got you. But also, you know, there are some surprising names on here. Um, Alderman Brian Hopkins in charge of public safety. I think Brian Hopkins was probably one of the aldermen most vocally supportive of Paul Vallis. Uh, I saw him at his campaign party and he was kind of running the show there. And so now here he is uh, in charge of the public safety committee. So maybe there are some compromises being made, some olive branches being extended. I don't know which way that came from. I don't know the particulars, but it what it isn't just it isn't just the socialists. There are a there is a, a, a ideological range of the list that we've seen so far, which again still could change in, in the next couple of weeks. Johnson strategically, I would say wisely, um, has we've seen in the last few weeks he's been appointing, you know, he hasn't just you know, cleaned house completely. There's been a lot of, you know, city hall insiders that he's kept on as perhaps some sort of show of and not just show, maybe just some sort of indication that he's he wants to, you know, he wants to work with everyone. 
And one thing we should mention is that all committees are not created equal. We talked a lot about finance and zoning, and so many of the newsworthy or what we deem newsworthy ordinances uh, come through them. Like budget committee is a big one, right? But a lot of these other committees, like they often sporadically meet. They don't necessarily advance that that much legislation. You know, like the traffic committee advances pretty routine, you know, signs and or you know, like rules and stuff like that. But you know, a lot of these, not all of these committees are are deciding on big, meaty subjects all the time. Every single episode of City Cash Chicago ends with some good news. We just love putting some attention on the great stories happening around the city, the the cool events that are coming up, the the people we want to give shout outs to. Quinn, I want to start with you. What's your some good news? Oh man, I'm feeling good today. <laughs> well, you're sounding good too. Uh, I, I I think. What you know, we were talking about the migrant crisis, the humanitarian crisis. Um, it is absolutely a tragedy. It's a public emergency. But we've seen such a beautiful outpouring of support from Chicagoans um, mm-hmm. all over the city, including in South Shore, including on Woodlawn, um, of people delivering meals, delivering clothes. Um, at the 12th district, just to read from a block club story from a few days ago, um, Venezuelan migrant uh, friend, Junior Malave, um, he was wearing a pair of shoes. They were so small, he couldn't, he had to take them off. So he was standing outside in his socks outside this police station. And then someone showed up uh, with a hundred dollar pair of Reeboks and gave them to him. You know, like that's the kind of outpouring of support we're seeing. Um, and I just want to hype up block club has a kind of uh, a list here about how to help uh, the latest wave of migrants coming to Chicago. There's, uh, you can donate. The city has created like an Amazon wish list where you can um, buy certain things. Um, you can donate to food sh- food pantries, um, other basic supplies. Uh, and there's also been this plea for legal services. So if any lawyers are out there looking for pro bono work, there is a huge backlog for these asylum seekers in immigration cases in general. They really need help. Um, so I think that is kind of the the silver lining of this, we've kind of seen how our city um, has responded. And, you know, I talked to, speaking of Alderman Hopkins, we talked to him this week and he said he was just uh, remarkably impressed by how the, even if the city is dysfunctional, uh, its residents have really honored the welcoming city uh, idea and proclamation. And we're seeing that right now out on the streets. It is clear that the Chicagoans have tried to step up as much as possible in this. And so we'll drop articles uh, and links uh, to resources for people who want to know how can they get involved in even a small way. And just one last interesting note, um, you know, we uh, worked on a story with a few of my colleagues, including Mina Bloom, and she interviewed um, an organizer in Avondale who was basically saying, you know, the the network of support that we created during COVID of caring for people of uh, especially, um, you know, underserved communities like that still exists and people are still ready to kind of willing to jump out there and deliver a meal or, um, you know, let someone into their house. We're hearing stories about people letting people into their houses to take a shower, you know, um, when they when they can't get anywhere else. So that kind of uh, silver lining from COVID is kind of translated uh, into this crisis. I usually do my some good news last, but I'm gonna do my second. Uh, this weekend, we got a few things that push us closer and closer to summer. One being festival season is back upon us. The Lincoln Park Mayfest is kicking off uh, tonight and is running all weekend long. But then another great staple of the Chicago Loop, the Buckingham Fountain is getting turned on Saturday from 12 to 3 p.m. There's a huge event. Go out there, take pictures. I don't know if you like me, but throw your drone in the air to get that amazing uh, aerial footage. Uh, there'll also be like small giveaways and things you could do as well. And so, 
you know, as we get closer and closer to the best weather Chicago has to offer this weekend is just a reminder. It, it, it truly is around the corner. Festivals, wine walks, Buckingham Fountain, there are plenty of events. And the best way to keep track of all of them is to head over to our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm, the best damn newsletter in the city, where Sydney Man has the latest in news and events for you. And now... Tower lead producer Carrie Shepard, I'm going to ask, what is your some good news <laughs> to get the people through the weekend? Uh, Jacoby, my good news is a little bit of bittersweet news, and it that is. is that today is my last day at CityCast Chicago um, because I got a new job, and a, but I will still absolutely 1,000% be so close to CityCast Chicago. As I told Jacoby earlier, you cannot get rid of me. I will haunt you. I will, everywhere you look, I will be there. Um, I'm going to be the third Chicago reporter at Axios, uh, which is a daily newsletter. I'm going to join my former colleagues and friends, Monica Eng and Justin Kaufman. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is good news in that um, I get to continue to cover this fantastic, amazing city. Good news that I hopefully can keep coming back on CityCast Chicago as a guest. Um, and good news to celebrate what has been an incredible two years of launching this, but also just working with insanely talented people like you, Jacoby. And you're just... <laughs> Jacoby, I think people don't understand because uh, they don't see the other side of it, is just like incredibly gracious and humble and so smart. Jacoby, you are so smart. And everybody knows that because they listen. But... I would have never worked with Jacoby. I would have never worked with producer Simone Alisea, and I would have never worked with our newsletter editor, Sydney Madden. And I'm just so, so beyond honored that you guys let me work alongside you the last two years. So that's some that's some good news is that you're in my life now forever. Um, we've had a few opportunities over the last couple of weeks to like process this, to, to tell you how we feel. We haven't talked about it on the air Um but I, I want our entire CityCast network, all the people who are listening, to know um, that without our lead producer, Carrie Shepard, none of this, right? I say it every week, right? I want to thank the people who make this possible. But without you, without your work ethic, without your network, without your ideas and your creativity, this plane would have never, ever got off the ground. And we actually had to build this from episode one to episode 550, whatever the hell we are now. Uh, and so much of that has been because of your leadership. You're the person who sings with me the most. You're the person <laughs> who who goes off track and make the meetings last way longer with me the most. The person Oops. who I text <laughs> randomly Southside quotes during the weekend when we're not on the clock. And I appreciate you. I'm going to miss you. Um, I know you're not going anywhere in terms of our lives, but seeing you every day truly has been a joy for the last couple of years. And, Same. Uh, Same. and I appreciate you being a part of this journey with us. Thanks, Jacoby. Thank you to the fantastic Block Club Chicago reporter Quinn Myers Yay. for joining me on another weekly rewind here at CityCast Chicago. Thanks for having me. This has been such a blast. Thank you. Always love talking to both of you. Before I let you go, 
Every week, this is the part of the show where I thank the team who makes CityCast Chicago. You know, producer Simone Alisea, newsletter editor Sydney Madden, our producer Elizabeth Kama, the people who make the music, Sam Thousand, Mark Greenberg, all the kimonos. Well, I guess technically I did just thank them, but this week, the CityCast team wants to thank Carrie for leading us and helping create this show over the past two years. I didn't want to be the only one showing love. Producer Simone Alisea here. Carrie, I just wanted to thank you so much for being such a great leader and a mentor. I am going to be so sad not to be slacking you constantly all day, every day. Uh, but I assure you there will be many, many texts from me uh, in your future. And best of luck at Axios. So excited to see your work there. It's newsletter writer Sydney. Carrie, thank you so much for everything. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but I think I'm most grateful for the same care that you put into our newsletters and podcasts you uh, put into the team. So thank you. Jermaine from Team Marketing here. Uh, Carrie, I am so excited for your next steps. Best wishes and the biggest congratulations to you. And while I will miss you on the day to day, I know that it'll be just fine because I've found my new love is blind buddy. So who is ready for season five? <laughs> this is Caroline, director of growth marketing here at CityCast. Um, a listener before I worked here, a current listener, of course, and probably a forever listener. And that's all due to the podcast that Carrie created and continually made amazing every single day. I have you to thank for making me love CityCast so much so that I decided to work here. I'm so grateful to have gotten to learn from you and I wish you nothing but luck on your next journey. This is Andy McDaniel, CityCast's Chief Creative Officer. Carrie Shepard, we are going to miss you so much and you leave some really big shoes to fill. Not just because you're a great lead producer, but because there's just nobody who cares about their team as much as you do. No one who works as hard as you do. No one who loves the city as much as you do. You have made CityCast Chicago what it is and, and really you've made CityCast what it is. This is Will, I'm a content director at CityCast and I could say so many great things about Carrie as a producer, a leader, a reporter, but I want to call out the time she filled up a Ziploc bag with candy, put it in her pocket, took it on a plane with her to Denver, then gave it to me the first time we met just as a nod to some stupid inside joke we had because it's just so her. She puts so much thought and care in everything she does and I'll miss her, but I still have that candy. For the last time, thank you to our lead producer, Carrie Shepard. We'll miss you, but obviously we'll talk to you very soon. I'll be here bright and early on Monday talking about one mayor leaving the fifth floor just as another one enters. Join us then. Peace. At BZ years ago, I biked in and uh, my helmet was on the table and Rob put it on. And Rob actually has like a really tiny head. And so it like like it like drooped down over his eyes. And <laughs> there's a picture of it somewhere. Maybe it's there's a picture just steered into my brain. I'll never, I'll, I will never forget that. He has it was like, like a dude, little... you're putting my sweaty helmet on. Um, anyway, so, he yeah. has like a little pinhead, and <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, okay, all, all right. Is that going to make the final cut? I hope so.